Welcome to the Stoyas Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Susan Dunay, a senior graduate student at UC San Diego, to talk about the relationship between food policy and women in the early years of the Franco dictatorship in Spain. So Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start out with just a little bit of background. As I'm sure some of our listeners know, General Francisco Franco assumed dictatorial control over all of Spain in 1939 at the end of the Civil War. But could you give us a sense of what the food supply was like, broadly speaking, during the war and if that supply changed once the war had ended? Great. Uh, very good question. So the Spanish Civil War in general was very destructive, not only to Spanish society, but then also to its agricultural and industry sectors as well. And so in places such as Madrid that was under siege and under constant bombardment, uh, the food supply was quite dire to the city. Similarly, uh, in Barcelona, although it was well connected uh, in different trade routes into the port, it had such an influx of refugees putting great strain on its food reserves and food provisioning for the population. On the other hand, you also have rural areas uh, that were less affected by the war and so they suffered to a less extent or had fewer irregularities within their food uh, provisioning. One example of that would be the rural area of Leon where uh, there was very little rationing that was needed or price regulation during the war itself. So then once the war ended did that pattern continue or was kind of a normal food supply uh, restored once there was no longer you know, active conflict? So one of the military campaigns of Francisco Franco and the Nationalists was to promise uh, wood in every hearth and bread on every table. And so a lot of Spaniards, especially the civilian ones, had the expectation that even if the war was not what they, the end of the war was not what they wanted, even if a dictatorship was not the desired outcome, they, they also really desired bread and they wanted to be able to feed their families and warm their home. Yet we can see through the historical record that that largely did not happen. The period of the 1940s became known as the years of hunger in Spain, where a lot of people suffered from malnutrition and even mass starvation. So could we even attach the word famine to what took place in those early years? So the term famine uh, refers to agricultural production and we can see that during the war there were you know, because Spain was at war against itself there was great interruptions to agricultural production and the amount of uh, supplies in order to plant, to fertilize, to harvest were interrupted from about 1939 to 1942 and then received another interruption at the end of World War II from about 1945 to 1947. So those were all environmental factors to agriculture. What my research is about in my dissertation is food crisis. And so that is looking at how government intervention within the food supply, how food is produced, distributed, and consumed uh, has a negative effect on the population. And so I specifically look at uh, urban areas such as Madrid, Barcelona, a few other cities as comparison to see how policy adopted by the dictator ended up creating a food crisis in many of the cities for people who were unable to produce their own food. So I guess what we're talking about here are food shortages that were actually caused by 
the government as opposed to simply, I don't know, a drought or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Well, and in one particular case, in 1946, for example, the state propaganda machine published all this information saying that there was a horrible drought in Madrid and it was cited in the Arriba newspaper that was published by the Falange, the fascist party in Spain, as well as echoed in ABC. Uh, one of the other newspapers and on radio programs. But I had a friend pull the Manzanares water supply for 1946 and the, the rainfall. The river through Madrid. Yes, uh-huh. the river through Madrid. And uh, the rainfall for that year was actually normal. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not able to recover uh, precipitation levels for the snow melt, but at least as far as rain that mm-hmm. occurred, there was no drought. And so in that case, it was all fabricated by the, by the state in order to co- cover up the food crisis that was actually cur- occurring and to lay blame on nature rather than uh, the state orchestrated food crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about what these policies that the government had were that was causing that this food crisis? Well, in a lot of ways, uh, the policies adopted by the Franco dictatorship aligned in some regard to those of other countries. So during the 1940s, many Western nations adopted policies on rationing, for example, um, that regulated how food was distributed to make sure it was somewhat even among the population. Also, as far as creating subsidies, price restrictions to avoid black marketeering or price gouging. Uh, This was common in the UK, for example, that actually had a rationing system longer than Spain did, um, as well as in France and the Soviet Union as well. But what makes What makes the Spanish case a little bit more exceptional is how ideology and Francoist culture was implanted within these policies. And so in the case of the rationing system, at least from 1939 to 1943, was embedded with gender ideology as well, so that the ration cards were issued to the male head of the household, who was issued a 100% ration, whereas women and elderly received 80% and children 60%. Mm-hmm. And so this was to replicate the family unit in that case. Also, yeah, the system of autarky, which supported ultra-nationalist ideology of if Spain did not produce it, Spaniards would go without in terms of consumer goods. Uh, This was a policy that was adopted in other fascist countries such as uh, Italy and Portugal, but in the case of Spain it had dire consequences for the population who didn't have access to basic goods and necessities. So can you just tell us a little bit more about this idea of autarky? It's essentially trade restrictions that are limiting the flow of goods, including food, into into Spain. Is, is that kind of the idea? Autarky basically is an economic policy that means self-sufficiency. And so the idea is that Spanish products are the best and Spaniards should consume and support Spanish companies, Spanish brands. This was problematic in the 1940s for a country that was recovering from war devastation, where a lot of the demand just could not be covered alone. Even before the Spanish Civil War, Spain's wheat production was not enough to meet demand within Spain. And so you can assume with the destruction of, um, of different fields, the loss of the grain storage, 
uh, seed storage to plant more crops and loss of labor in order to harvest that it became even more severe and so the refusal to import became very dire. Even though the government has this policy that is really depriving its own citizens of food, I imagine it was also doing things to try and say that it was trying to deal with and improve this food crisis. So what kind of things was the government saying that it was doing? One example was Franco negotiated with uh, Perón, the leader of Argentina at the time, to import meat as well as grain and then receive a line of credit from Argentina during the 1940s. And that greatly helped uh, Spaniards to survive the years of hunger by having imported uh, foods from there. A curious example would be the import of rice from Alexandria and Saigon. State records from the 40s say that various British uh, ships either commandeered or sank uh, these very important shipments of rice from these places and so they weren't able to arrive to feed the people of Valencia. However, on the British counterpart, there is no evidence that this actually occurred. Hmm. And so, luckily that's not the question I'm asking in my dissertation because honestly I don't know. It's, it sounds like in some cases the government was even lying about the things that it was doing to, yes. <laughs> to recover from this, uh, this effort. You mentioned the rationing system that I know was a big part of how the government controlled the, the food supply in this period, but could you tell us a little bit more about how the rationing system worked on kind of a day-to-day basis? Very good question. In the case of everyday life, a threshold of prices was set by the Comisaria General de Abastecimientos y Transportes, um, which was the organizing body created in order to help with food and consumer provisioning uh, at the very end of the Spanish Civil War. It was actually founded just a few days after the fall of Barcelona to the nationalists and therefore was sort of in place with um, the fall of Madrid. And so this organization set a threshold of prices once a month for various goods that were deemed as primary necessity. And so those would include eggs, milk, bread, meat, uh, anything that was a normal part of diet. From that the different regions of Spain therefore set the actual price from within this range according to the cost of shipment to there, what their supply was, and various factors to determine what the regional price would be for that month. And then from that level, if if there was going to be a shortage of a particular good, it was then rationed and so there was a limit set on how much of a good someone could buy. Yeah, the the way it evolved got pretty complicated pretty quickly because tomatoes for example weren't rationed as a singular tomato but ended up being divided up by different varieties so that some varieties sold for some price one variety a different price some were rationed therefore restricted on how many you could buy Mm. others were not because they were considered a luxury item meat for example no matter how it was transformed ended up being considered a rationed good however if you put it between two slices of bread as a sandwich it was no longer price controlled Mm -hmm. and so there were different ways around the system that uh, ordinary Spaniards learned pretty quickly. So if it's a luxury good it was not price controlled so does that mean that actually 
rich people could have more access mm -hmm. to food. Exactly. And what I've also found too, just due to the concentration of wealth in say Barcelona, people from all the way in Extremadura, uh, farmers, would ship their agricultural products there because the Barcelona people would then have to pay transport costs from shipping across Spain. Mm -hmm. And so you see uh, shipments going to Barcelona from Extremadura, from Galicia, just because then they get the extra or they're able to get uh, the extra payment from the transportation cost. Therefore, the food situation in Barcelona ended up being a lot different than you know, the comparative city of Madrid, which was so central, no one wanted to send food there. It wasn't as cost-effective. So, and, and so I guess there is also quite a, a black market for food uh, outside of this rationing system. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah. Well, so a better term than black market or a more encompassing term would be non-governmental food strategies. And so within the 1940s in Spain, we can see three aspects of it. Uh, one would be the gray economy. So as you can imagine, at the end of the Spanish Civil War, Republican money was completely worthless. And so anyone with cash assets was out of luck as far as what they were able to acquire. So people who had property to sell or had services to offer uh, were able to use those in exchange for food or clothing, other mm -hmm. consumer goods. Likewise, another example would be jornaleros who would work for a day in the fields and then get paid a sack of food and wages, whether it be grains or olives or almorta seeds, you know, based on what uh, the work they had done that day. Mm -hmm. And so those are all examples of gray economy where it was a barter service based on I'll give you, you know, this new shirt if you give me a sack of potatoes or something like that. Right. Black market refers more to business dealings or the sale of goods without the state intervention. So an example with the, of that would be, I found a lot of case studies where women or families would uh, bake bread or other pastries out of their home and try to sell those just as a side job. And so they weren't actually registered as a business. They didn't have the health and safety inspection. They didn't have the permits, nor did they pay taxes on it. So it was considered black market bread or pastries. Similarly, you have women who would jar and pickle their own vegetables or their own, uh, create their own jam and that type of thing in their home and try to sell those just as a side business. Um, and all those are considered black market foods. And, and meat is the same way too. It was illegal to slaughter your own meat, but uh, you, could, uh, you could still find on most streets leading to Madrid, someone selling a cow or a goat um, that you could take and, uh, with you, even though that was strictly uh, forbidden within the government laws. Well, and then the final one would be uh, estraperlo which was a more sophisticated view of black market dealings. And so those, those required the collusion of the state. And so when we look at Estraperlo, we see examples of smugglers buying off border control agents at the border in Portugal or in Gibraltar in order to bring in lots of goods. Or you see Civil Guard members or municipal police stopping a car Know, full of bread and uh, in taking that, taking their contraband you know, for their own personal use rather than turning it in as evidence in the case against them. 
And so those are the three forms of non-governmental food strategies that Spaniards participated in during the 40s. So it sounds like all those practices were quite extensive. That yes. people, yeah. <laughs> so I think that gives us a really good overview of what kind of the food situation was in the immediate post-war period and how people dealt with that in their everyday lives. So we'll take a short pause here and then when we come back we'll look more at how people dealt with this food crisis, uh, especially women, on, on a day-to-day basis in the home. Welcome back. So I thought in this second part we could turn to how this issue of food scarcity in the early Franco period affected the daily life of women in particular. Maybe we could begin by talking about what the regime taught people women were supposed to do when it came to food. Could you summarize that for us a little bit? Uh, of course. So historian Aurora Morcio uh, put it very well when she termed the phrase true Catholic womanhood as this model femininity that was encouraged by, by the Franco regime as well as the Catholic Church, the military, and the Falange party. And so what it assumed is that Spanish women would be dutiful housewives and mothers. They would stay at home to raise their children and that uh, they would dedicate most of their lives to cooking, cleaning, and uh, maintaining the private sphere, whereas the men were charged with working in the public sphere, earning a breadwinner wage, and uh, providing for the family. So women were not seen as being individuals, but as part of a family unit that would then therefore make a whole. Yeah, from that, uh, this concept was so important to the Franco regime and to the Falange party in particular, that uh, similar to the male, the obligatory male military service, that all Spanish men had to do. There was a female obligatory six months of community service called the Servicio Social uh, that all women age 18 to 35 were supposed to participate in. And um, it's part of what started me on my research, not only for my master's thesis, but now for dissertation as well, when I found out that looking at these instructions, that women actually spent more time in cooking classes within the Servicio Social than they did in religion and politics combined. Wow. And so it was 36 hours of cooking classes that were required for all women in order to get a passport, a driver's license, or a uh, work permit. And so what we associate as basic rights of a citizen, women had to complete cooking classes and be able to bake, say, a souffle or a stew or whatever in order to be able to drive a car. 
Wow, that's Travel amazing. Yeah. So essentially for the regime, cooking w was a critical part of a woman actually becoming a, a citizen and, and part of the society. Exactly. And not only that, but uh, one of the things that I argue in my master's thesis and continue with my dissertation is that the reason that cooking was so imperative uh, is because food is something that's ingested every day and it was a way for different policies such as the ultranationalism through autarky or uh, teaching religious taboo uh, through the Catholic Church all those can be communicated and transmitted to the home through food mm -hmm. um, because it's a commodity that traverses both the public and private sphere and I uh, was interested in your chapter, you had a schedule of what the women were taught, kind of the ideal schedule for a woman in the house would be. It was almost entirely dedicated to preparing meals. Could you, could you yes. tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. What's really funny about this particular schedule, it was published in a women's magazine that was created by the uh, women's section of the Falange, so the women's branch of the Falange party, that basically advocated that women should spend the majority of their day either uh, setting the table, cooking, uh, clearing the table, serving the family mm -hmm. uh, for the different meals, whether it be breakfast, lunch, snack, dinner. And what I found interesting about this particular one is, I mean, even though most of the day was dedicated towards food, it was all food within the home, and none of it entailed food acquisition. Because uh, in the 1940s, women spent most of their day outside of the home, uh, waiting in ration lines or bartering for food uh, with different people, different vendors at the market, and trying to secure food in different ways. Also using different charity programs as well, mm -hmm. or advocating that their child receive a free lunch at their school. And so uh, quite a bit of women's time was dedicated to food, but a lot of it was outside the house. Yeah, that's very different from the, the kind of idealized expectation of the regime. Now, how about when women actually are cooking uh, in the home, but dealing with this scarcity of food? What were some strategies that they used to adapt to the situation? Right. As far as cooking goes, there were rolling blackouts of electricity in the city. Sometimes uh, when the gas bill was late, it would be shut off for different homes. And so cooking fuel was very tenuous for a lot of Spanish women within the cities. One of the strategies was to use economical ovens or uh, wood burning stoves. And when wood wasn't available, they would burn old furniture they found on the side of the street. They would burn rubble that was recovered from the devastation of the war. And sometimes they would just burn propaganda posters or uh, tear up these recipe books and uh, magazines to use as uh, fuel to cook the family meal as well, or which is devastating for a historian who needs that uh, historical right. record. So it sounds like there was a real resilience of these women to find a way to acquire food and, and cook a meal no matter what. I think you argue that in a sense, this was a form of political expression, if not outright resistance, for women at a time when they were not sp supposed to have any uh, political expression. So what leads you to uh, make that argument? 
Well, something I try to do in my dissertation, and it's part of the investigation of everyday life, is not to try and group people into the majority or focus on a minority of experiences, but to really uh, provide a spectrum of different situations faced by ordinary Spanish women, whether they be from the elite class, from the working class, from the middle of the city, from the hinterland. Uh, lots of different avenues and aspects uh, were available to them in, in that regard. What I try to argue in my dissertation and prove with ample amount of sources is that women's strategies were not monolithic, but they adapted according to different, different opportunities that were available to them. So for some women, participation within the regime, within the Servicio Social, was one of their best bets in order to acquire food. And so a lot of women, even though they didn't necessarily agree with the ideology, would come to volunteer or work within these kitchens and then rob them blind just so that they would be able to have access to that food for their families. Uh, likewise, other women who participated in the black market adopted illegal strategies in order to survive and provide for their families, which is you know more on the resistance side. And you know, for most Spanish women, it falls within a conformity and non-conformity somewhere in the middle. And when we consider what goes into making a meal and taking apart each recipe and ingredient piece by piece, we can really see that all four of these aspects went into uh, creating daily uh, provisioning for a Spanish family. That yes, there was some level of uh, acquiescence to the regime and to the policy. Some food had to be bought on ration cards or at the official prices, whereas others were bought in more of a uh, resistant way through the black market or and then you have the gray economy somewhere in the middle where things were bought, bartered and sold without the intervention of the state but not in resistance to the state either mm -hmm. and so yeah it, it's really more of a spectrum what's interesting to me is that in this regime that is trying to control people's lives as much as possible and achieve conformity they've created a situation with this food scarcity where people are almost forced to actually not obey all the rules yeah. and to it's and, every man and woman for himself or herself yeah yes, exactly. exactly so it creates almost the opposite situation mm -hmm. of what uh the people in power really wanted when i think a lot of it you can see within the diversity of spain i hate to say universal but uh there is so much diversity between urban and rural spain between north south center coastal that mountainous versus beach that trying to impose a monolithic identity or a monolithic experience as the dictatorship was trying to do is really impossible because there's way too much wiggle room for a lot of people to be able to get around it. And if it's one thing Spaniards are really good at, it's getting around bureaucracy and rules. So Right. And I think especially in a country that didn't have the resources like Nazi Germany did or the Soviet Union did later on to really try and effectively control every aspect of people's lives. So could you also tell us a little bit about what sources have been using to be able to find all this information about the different strategies uh, women use to confront this food scarcity? As I mentioned in the first half of our talk, government sources 
while interesting, are very ambiguous and a lot of times are just outright false. And so um, I'm quite limited on what's available there. And even newspapers oftentimes were just a mouthpiece for the regime as well. So in order to get to what was really going on, it took a lot of digging. Cookbooks, I tried to use quite a bit. And although they don't necessarily reflect any meal that anyone cooked or prepared or necessarily represent daily life, they still give some hints as far as what was occurring at the time. So for example, if a recipe said, light the wood in your stove, that would mean that it's a wood burning stove and that that was the technology that it was assumed that its readership had. Mm -hmm. And so that was the intended audience. Other times where a recipe, which I'll share with you later, uh, calls for bird stock rather than chicken stock for a stew. And so uh, what that shows is, you know, whereas there was maybe a shortage of chicken or the chicken was more uh, useful for laying eggs, uh, fowl, you know, whatever birds that were able to be hunted uh, were uh, then used to make uh, stock for soups and stews rather than chickens. Uh, there, there's little ways to read recipes to get a better idea of what was going on. And in the case of preserving foods, for example, uh, different manuals that said how to pickle or how to can, how to create your own jams. Those are those were all guides showing that you know people probably did read this and tried to do it themselves. And another thing you mentioned in your chapter that I thought was interesting was that in some cases it was actually illegal to can things. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> and so, why was that? Well, so part of the efforts in rationing uh, was to distribute. Uh, the food supply according to government standards. And so one way around that would be to hoard or to keep food for individual families or to sell themselves. And so, yeah, there were, there were really strict laws in place uh, considering how much meat you could have in your home, how much flour, how much bread. You were very limited with how much food was allowed to be stockpiled within a pantry just because if someone has a lot of food, then it wasn't getting distributed. So one of the reasons that it was so important for Spanish families to stockpile as much food as possible is because even though the Spanish Civil War ended, we have to remember that World War II broke out quickly afterwards. And with the hindsight that historians have, knowing that Spain never got involved in World War II or to a large extent, Spaniards at the time did not know that. And so they were constantly under the threat and fear of additional war and not irregular food supply and not knowing what was going to happen in the future. And for that reason, hoarding and preserving food uh, ended up being very necessary for their survival and for their own peace of mind. So thank you so much, Suzanne, for coming on the program. I think this has been a fascinating discussion of perhaps a lesser known aspect of the early Franco years, but one that is so critical to understanding the way people live their lives in, in that difficult time. And uh, Suzanne has grac graciously offered to post a couple of recipes from one Spanish family on the webpage for this episode as well so you can take a look and get a sample of the kind of things that at least one family was actually cooking in in this time so thank you suzanne uh, thank you for having me on your show thank you for listening to this episode of historias for additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings 
please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.